Chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. The apostle writes, But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into, into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, And Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good fortune for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me in prayer, please. Lord God, we give you thanks and we give you praise for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for calling us out of sleep and into worship with your church and your bride here this morning at Christ Community Church. Lord, we pray, God, that as we uh, continue to make our way through Paul's letters to Timothy, Lord, that you would uh, honor our worship, Lord, as we look at your word. Lord, we thank you for the worship you've given us so far this morning. And we pray, Lord, as we continue to worship you through proclamation and through Eucharist and through more song, Lord, we pray, God, that our worship would be honorable to you and that it would be in spirit and in truth. And we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today's text, as you've probably picked up on pretty quickly, is kind of long. But even though it's long, I think it's pretty straightforward. Because what, what Paul does here is he presents to us really a simple question, which is, are you content? Contentment, in, in the case of Paul, especially in this text, should, could also be understood as, uh, as satisfaction. So another way to ask this question is, what brings you satisfaction? Or to ask it in the negative, are you unsatisfied? Are you restless? 
Are you content with Christ and in godliness, or are you placing your satisfaction to be content by your own means? That's really what this text presents us with today. So very simply, what we have here at the end of 1 Timothy, we'll move on into 2 Timothy next week, but here at the end of 1 Timothy, what Paul is doing is he's drawing upon what I really picked out, two themes, two concepts in this major passage. There's a lot more going on here than this, but he's picking up, he's pulling out two concepts in order to really challenge us in how we understand where our satisfaction comes from, what satisfies us. And the first concept is simply desire. Where do our desires lie? And then the second concept that he brings out here is fight, which as good Western Americans we really like, right? Fight. Fight for the faith. And so let's just look at each of those concepts. So first let's look at desire. Now to better grasp what he's getting at here, just real quick, we need a basic really reminder of the context of 1 Timothy and of Timothy's ministry in Ephesus. So Again, Timothy is kind of interim serving in Ephesus. He was left there by Paul to set things in order we read about in 1 Timothy 1. But doing this really helps us to see how this concept of satisfaction and contentment is immediately applicable to our own context as much as it was to Timothy's. So remember from last week, usually, but not always, but usually with every New Testament letter, you can make a pretty decent guess that one of two things are going to be troubling the churches and the recipients of these letters. Either it's persecution or it's heretical teaching. That's usually the case for the most part with these New Testament letters. For Timothy, it's a little bit of both, especially in Ephesus. But this is an issue that is consistently popping up in the church, both ancient and modern. We're always dealing with persecution somewhere or bad teaching somewhere. In the materially rich West, Right now, it's going to be a little bit more heretical teaching than it is persecution. But the point is, in Ephesus, Paul has been instructing Timothy so far throughout this whole letter to deal with these false teachers that have come in to those who are teaching a different doctrine. Those, as we've seen just over the last couple of weeks, those whose ministry is not grounded in the orthodox gospel of Christ, he tells them to deal with them, and the reason for this, Paul notes, is because, because their ministry is not grounded in the gospel of Christ, they are not content with the things that God has presented to them, with the things that God has given them. And so he writes in verses 3 through 5, which are right before our text this morning, he writes this, and he uses an if-then kind of situation. He says this in verse 3, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound or the healthy words, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So if those things, verse 4, then that person is puffed up. And he's puffed up with conceit and he understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So he says here, these people, these false teachers, are not content with the gospel because they are not content with the blessings that God has provided through Christ. And instead, in verses 9 and 10, which do come in our text today, it's about the middle of the page of the section there at the bottom of the page in the bulletin. He says, instead of contentment in Christ, they desire wealth, not godliness. And so he says this in verses 9 and 10. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what Paul states here is that false teachers, all false teachers, and those who embrace their teaching assume that godliness is a means of material gain. Which shows us not only their heart's desire, but it also shows us where their satisfaction and their contentment is found. False teachers, that, and these specifically that Timothy is dealing with and commissioned in chapter 1 verse 18 to wage a good warfare against, these false teachers treat godliness as a means of material gain. And as Paul mentions in verse 6, which is that first verse in your bulletin there, and we'll dig into this more in a few minutes, he says that godliness is indeed a means of gain but not in the way that false teachers desire, not in a way that makes them content. And so he's telling us that the desire for material wealth results then in a temptation towards evil. And he states that this desire is a snare because what it does is it traps the greedy by their own desires. There is a really cruel, and I I stress the word cruel, trap that you can set for raccoons, right? And I'm going to use this as a good illustration, but really... What you can do is you can you put something shiny right, in, in, in a hole that they have to stick their hand in to grab and put something that is spiky right, or hard. They will not let go of anything, right? especially if it's shiny. Even if it means hurting themselves, they will sit there and starve to death, which is really cruel. But this illustrates the point well. A raccoon will grab onto that shiny thing in a hole and not pull their hand out because they know the nails or whatever it is you have is going to harm their hand. But they're not going to let go of the thing because it's a treasure to them. It's a desire for them. It's the same thing here. This is what this desire for material gain is for false teachers. It is a snare, and it traps them in their their desires. And these desires, what Paul tells us in this passage, it leads to ruin and destruction. This is why he warns us as the church, not against the use of money or even the accumulation of money, but against the idolatrous desire for wealth. Because he's stressing here, he says money in itself is not evil. Money in itself is not the root of evil, nor is even the use of money. We have to use money to live in our society. Rather, he says it is the love of money. It is the desire for money that results in ruin and destruction. And so Paul warns us here, he says this desire, this is a craving. This is a hunger for money that has has led to some to wander away from the faith. Origin points here. He says this was actually, in his mind, this was the root cause for the sin of Judas. He says Judas, in appearance, championed the cause of the poor. Right? But in reality, he was a thief because he loved money. John actually points us to this in John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, John is recording where Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. And about halfway down here in verses uh, 6 through 8, excuse me, yes, 4 through 8, 4 through 6. I put 6 through 8 in my notes, and it's supposed to be 4 through 8. But anyway, in verses 4 through 6, and I'm all over the place, John writes this. He says, but Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples and who was about to betray him, said this. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And John writes, he says, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And he, having the charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas was a thief. He was not content in the blessing of just being in the presence of Christ. But thinking about money, we have to be careful because our immediate reaction 
is to, re- is to react by overreacting. Right? And we say, okay, money is the root of evil. I'm just going to ignore money and say money is sinful. Being wealthy is sinful. Being wealthy is not sinful. Wealth in itself is not sinful. It's the straining after wealth. It's the craving for wealth. That constant desire and that hunger for wealth that causes a person to fall into the temptation of placing their desires on where it really should be found, which is contentment in the Lord Jesus. And so just to illustrate this even further, Paul, what he does is he starts to offer some commands for the rich then in verses 17 through 19, which is found at the bottom part of our passage. So it's on the next page in your bulletin. Because Paul understands something that we should all grasp, especially when it comes to money, right? Is that if in chapter 1 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, if it is a trustworthy saying that is deserving of full acceptance by the church that Christ came into the world to save sinners, then at some point Christ is going to save people that have a lot of money because that just logically makes sense. Not everybody is dirt poor. Some people have a lot of money. And so since some who are rich will come to Christ... Paul, what he does then in verses 17 through 19 is summarizes that the rich, the very wealthy, like every single Christian, should do the work of servant ministry that all Christians have been called to. They need to keep their priorities straight on Christ to avoid the sinful desire to accumulate more wealth. And so he writes this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them, Timothy, charge those rich that are in the church, charge them to do this, not to be haughty. Or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The rich are to do good. They are to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And so we see that being rich is far different than desiring constant wealth. Being rich in itself is not sinful. Some have simply just made good business decisions, and they've made money off of it. Some have saved their money well. They're very frugal. Some have made good investments, or they've hired somebody to make good investments for them. I mean, this is just how an economy works. I would, At the basic level, maybe Walton's looking at me like, man, you've got it all wrong. No, but but yeah, this is how an economy works, right? So some have just made good investments. There's nothing inherently sinful about being wealthy. And so what Paul does is he says, here are a few pastoral comments and and commands to give to those who have made good investments, who have saved their money well, who have have made good business decisions. He says – he gives two in verse 17. He says, first, don't be haughty with your wealth. Don't demean others who do not have the wealth that you have. Don't assume that you're better than everyone else because you've got money and they don't. Instead, recognize that God intends – For you to enjoy the good gifts that he's given you. You have wealth, then enjoy it. But don't be haughty about it. Hope only for the future that is found in Christ. And then second in verse 17, he says this. He says, recognize that God is actually the source of your wealth. You may have made good investments. You may have had good business decisions. But those things have been fruitful because God has blessed them. So it is God, he says in verse 17, who has richly provided you with everything to enjoy. And then in verse 18, what he does is he commands the rich then to recognize the priority of using their wealth to bless others. So like all saved sinners who are all called to servant ministry in Christ, the wealthy Christian is also commanded to do good works. But do your good works out of your wealth. You have the means to do so. Do good works for the church. Do good works for the body of Christ. 
Be generous with your wealth. Even be ready to share your wealth if necessary, particularly to meet the physical needs of those who have no food and have no clothing, those things which he told us in in verse 8 that we are to be content with. Because what this does is it shows that a heart that is unwilling to be generous with someone who lacks the basic necessity of food and clothing, it reveals a heart that is idolatrous of the desire and craving for more wealth. This is the love of wealth that is the root of all kinds of evil because it causes you to wander away from satisfaction in Christ. You love your wealth more than you love doing good to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then finally in verse 19, he commands the rich. He says, you need to recognize that your true wealth resides in the Lord Jesus, who, unlike the uncertainty of wealth, Christ is a sure and certain hope for the future. Christ you can lay up treasures in heaven with. And so what Paul does then... Going back to verses 6 through 8, he then commands Timothy. He says, he commands Timothy, he commands us. He says, you need to flee then the temptation for the lust and the desire for material gain. Be content instead with the food and clothing that God has provided. Be content with the good gifts that you have. And instead, desire and crave and hunger after the things that provide real satisfaction in Christ. And so this is what he writes in verses 6 through 8. He says, now there is great Gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And then he says this down in verse 11, a few lines down in your bulletin. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, flee those desires for more wealth, flee those desires where the root of evil is the love of money, and instead pursue desire righteousness, desire godliness, desire. Faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Godliness, he says, is indeed a great gain as long as it is content when it is satisfied with what God has provided. Whenever godliness is joined with contentment, with satisfaction, when godliness is joined with what God has provided, then real godly gain is the result. If God has given little, then contentment in God and in Christ, is satisfied and thankful for that little that God has provided. If God has given wealth, then contentment is satisfied and thankful for the wealth that God has provided. But in each, he commands us, do the work of servant ministry while placing your hope for the future in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And godliness, godly contentment is a means of great gain because its satisfaction is not based on the gifts that God has provided, but on God himself who has provided those gifts. Godly contentment is not constantly hungering and craving for more. Rather, what godly contentment is doing is it understands that we have brought nothing into the world when we were born, and when we die, we can take nothing with us. Every time I read this passage, uh, there's a joke slash illustration that a pastor friend of mine in Mississippi used that I think is really applicable to this verse. So I don't know if this is a real story or not. If it is, it makes it almost slightly more applicable. But in this story, there is a very, very wealthy man who died. And in his will, he instructs his lawyer to bury him with every last dime in his bank account. I want you to bury me with all of my money. It's my money. I want it with me in death. And so the lawyer honors it. He goes to his funeral, takes out his checkbook, writes a check for every last penny that the man had in his account, and puts it in the coffin with him. And here's the problem. Dead men can't cash checks. So they close the casket 
and the lawyer has all the money, right? You can't take anything with you. (laughs) Be content and be satisfied with Christ instead. And so what Paul does then is he reminds us that material possessions are not the key to a satisfied life. Material possessions can be nice, but they, they can't make you content. Satisfaction is found only in godly contentment, not in the acquisition of more. Calvin writes here, he says, when Paul presents to us food and clothing, he mentions these things, but he excludes, Calvin says, he excludes luxuries and overflowing abundance. Not that to use luxury and overflowing abundance is to be condemned, but rather lusting after them is always sinful. And then Cyril of Jerusalem stated that this is part of the paradox of the Christian faith. Because he says the believer who is rich is rich even when he is poor. Knowing that we have need of only food and clothing and being content with these, the believer has trampled all riches underfoot. I think anyone that has taken a moment and traveled outside of the materially rich West can quickly attest to the richness of faith found in those who have very little materially. And so the posture of a saved sinner, going back a little bit to our language from Habakkuk, a posture of a saved sinner who understands that their righteousness is found by faith alone in Christ, also understands that it is only by the pursuit of righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness that he presents to us here in verse 11, only by pursuit of these things can godly contentment be found. But let's be honest. This whole idea and discussion on contentment is a major struggle for many Christians. Not, and not because they struggle with a lust and a desire for money, but simply because they struggle with being content with God or being content with godliness. That's a hard thing for a lot of Christians. For some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they be here at Christ Community or even other churches, this can be a lifelong struggle, and it's a lifelong frustration. Again, this, this isn't a sinful desire for wealth or even the false security that wealth promises, but we each have those things. We need to be reminded in this that we each have those things that we are tempted to place above Christ for our hope and our security for the future. And that could be anything. Whether that is the assurance of health care, right? that, that is a thing that we place our hopes in sometimes, or the assurance of a job that actually provides us with enough money just to keep the lights on, or the assurance of an education to where we can get a job, or even a marriage or the promise of a marriage. We find ourselves placing our contentment and our satisfaction in things other than the Lord Jesus. We're tempted to do this, and this is sinful. I know I've been guilty of this in the past, and to be honest, if, if I were to think hard enough about it, I'd probably find out that I did it this past week, not just before I came to faith in Christ or right after I came to faith in Christ. And so what Paul does then, and the rest of the passage that we haven't looked at yet, what he does when we are tempted to find contentment and satisfaction in something other than Christ, in verses 12 through 16, he actually offers us a rallying cry to hold on to. And so starting in verse 12, he tells Timothy this, when you are fleeing these things that you are tempted to put your hope in, instead fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who made his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained 
and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of all kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now, I know I went through that fast because I'm going to read it again in a minute. But what we see, at least in verse 12, we see actually when we're tempted to place our hopes in, in the future in something other than the Lord Jesus, in verse 12, Paul actually gives us two actions that we can bring to our aid in this rallying cry as we seek satisfaction in Christ. And the first one in verse 12 is simply we are to fight. Fight for the faith. Now, this seems at face value completely antithetical to what Christ has told us, right? Turn the other cheek. Be peaceful, right? Our immediate reaction is, I'm not supposed to fight anybody. But this is not the normal after-school fight behind the gym with the bully, right? At least that was my experience in school, right? Actually, we had a, we had a Woodman of the World building down the street from my high school. And so when, when, the, when the bullies wanted to fight each other, they would all say, I'll meet you at the WOW down the street. Because then the teachers can't get on to you for fighting off property, right? So that's what they did, right? This is where the bullies fight. But this is not an after-school fight. This is fighting for the faith in Christ, fighting for the faith that many have wandered away from because they have placed their hope in something other than Christ. But this is also a rallying cry for that Christian who is also tempted to place their security and their satisfaction in something other than the Lord Jesus, even if, it, even if they haven't wandered away from the faith. They've been faithful. They read their Bible. They pray. They trust in the Lord. They come to worship. They take Eucharist, all of these things. But you know what? Today was a hard day, and I need X. This is a rallying cry. Fight for the faith. This is fighting for the faith that, as Jude tells us, was once for all delivered to the saints. This is the apostolic faith. This is the orthodox faith in Christ that proclaims that Christ came to save sinners. And so Paul tells us in this passage that any teaching... Any teaching that proclaims eternal hope or contentment or satisfaction in something other than the Lord Jesus is a teaching that has wandered away from Orthodox Christianity. So don't just flee from that false teaching, but fight against it, which is a good fight and it is a worthy fight. So fight. But the second thing he tells us in verse 12 that is an action that we can call to our aid is to take hold. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So I did a little looking on this because I thought that was an interesting turn of a phrase because some translations use other words. And in the Greek, this word take hold could also mean the word seize or grasp or even cleave to, right? We're familiar with that. That's a biblical phrase, right? Cleave to. But in the Greek, this is done in order to take possession of something, right? So seize onto it and take possession of it, take ownership of it. And so what Paul is commanding us to do is to take possession of our eternal life. Now, this is not him suggesting that we merit it or we earn it, but rather he's, what he's doing is he's stirring us up to fight the good fight of the faith when we are tempted to put our satisfaction in something other than Christ. And he's pumping us up to fight so that we might seize that salvation in Christ that we have been given. And so he's saying, seize your salvation and own it. Fight for it. And at this point, I feel like I'm obligated because we had Hobbit Day yesterday to make a Lord of the Rings reference. At some point today, I have to make it because we celebrated Hobbit Day yesterday. So I came to this passage, and I don't know why, but my brain, I was thinking, man, I know there are other battle cries 
throughout literature and throughout history and even throughout scripture that I could draw upon. But I'm a Lord of the Rings dork. I have to draw upon that. And so your first thought, especially if you've only watched the movies, is, well, Aragorn gives a really great one in Return of the King. But there's a better one that I love, and it comes before that moment. And it's when King Theoden gives a speech to his people, Rohan, as they have come to the aid of Gondor. And I'm blending a little bit from the movie and the book here. But he, he gives them this speech above the fields of Pelennor, which are the fields outside of the city of Gondor. And he says, arise, riders of Rohan, arise, fell deeds have awakened. So let your horses be bridled and sound your horns. Ride now and ride to Gondor. It is this moment in the movie that if your volume is not all the way up, you turn it all the way up because the music blasts and like you get chills. It's awesome. But Paul is doing the same thing here because what he's saying, he's saying, arise, Christian, wake up and get up. And pursue contentment in Christ. And fight the good fight of the faith. Seize that eternal life that you have been given. And take hold of your salvation and proclaim it and make it your own. So while that may seem more easier said than done sometimes. We are able to find satisfaction in Christ not only by fleeing away from false teaching. And pursuing and chasing after the virtues of verse 11 of righteousness and godliness and faith and steadfastness and love and gentleness. But we are able to find satisfaction and contentment in Christ by fighting the good fight of faith and by grasping and seizing the salvation that we have been called to and by making it our own. But there's one more thing I want to point out before we come to the table. And it's in this verse. It's in verse 12. Paul's battle speech doesn't end with just fighting and taking hold, he actually tells us something else. He reminds Timothy here that this whole flight from false teaching and pursuit of godly virtues and fighting the good fight and seizing your salvation, all of this is done for one reason, and it's done because Timothy had made a good confession. So listen to what he says again in verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith and take hold, seize the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so I kept coming back to that phrase because that just stood out to me this week, right? It was was like an earworm that I just couldn't shake, right? For anyone in the room that has never seen Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, earworm has a whole different context than those that have, right? So an earworm usually is a song that you get stuck in your head. In Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, there's this worm that they literally put in your ear. It's very disturbing. And so I think I deserve at least an amen for using both Lord of the Rings and Star Trek within five minutes. But, yeah, but now I don't think Paul was thinking of Star Trek. But um, I could not get this whole mentality of good confession out of my head. And so I started to pay attention to it. And when I did, I noticed pretty quickly that Paul repeats it a second time in verse 13 as it relates to Christ. And usually when things are repeated in pretty close succession in Scripture, it means something you need to pay attention to. And so he says this. Again, he says to Timothy, take hold of the eternal life, seize it, about which you've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then he says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who also made a good confession. He made a good confession before Pontius Pilate. And it's out of this good confession 
that we read in verse 14, then, that we keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of Christ. So I, so I want to just explore that idea of good confession. What does Paul mean by this? And so just considering Jesus as first, because then it helps inform ours, because frankly, Jesus' good confession serves as an encouragement to our own good confession. And so, like everything we've seen so far in just the last two weeks in First Timothy, this is all grounded in the truth of the gospel of Christ, because... Like last week in chapter 2, we saw this theological distinction of the dual natures of Christ, divine and human, when we were looking at ransom and him being the man, Christ Jesus. But here, what Paul is doing is he's also calling upon the historical account of Christ on the cross. He says, Christ, who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession. Calvin proclaims here, he says that the teaching that we profess and the teaching that we confess was ratified in the death of Christ. He said Christ made his confession not in a multitude of words, but in reality by his death and by his resurrection. And so Jesus' confession is called good because the blood of the Son of God is a seal that removes all doubt about the truth of his confession, says Calvin. And then he goes on and he says, whenever our hearts are tempted to waver, let us remember that we should always go to the death of Christ for confirmation. And then Matthew Henry, actually, he ties this back to this whole idea of desire. And he says that Jesus' good confession is what draws all of his followers away from the desire and craving for wealth and into the satisfaction that is found only in Christ. And so Jesus makes a good confession. And so think about how that actually relates to our own. Because if Christ's confession serves as an encouragement for ours, then remembering our confession helps to bring us contentment in him. And so for all believers in Christ, this begins in our baptism, which sounds kind of funny the first time you think about it because immediately you want to go, no, that began in my salvation. And it does, sort of, but it's in our baptisms that we can look back on where we made our good confession of Christ. Because I imagine there are very few of us that actually can pinpoint that moment when the Spirit did His work in our hearts and actually ripped out our dead stony hearts and put in an actual heart of beating flesh and made us alive in Christ. I don't know if any of us know that moment. Some of us might know the moment we prayed a prayer. But if you understand the way salvation works, usually by the time you've prayed that prayer, you already believe anyway. You're just confirming it. But most of us can remember the moment we were baptized. And to illustrate that, consider the language that Paul actually uses just in these two verses, especially as it is related and compared to Christ's confession. So he writes that Christ made his good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, this is not something that means before the time of Pilate, right? This means something in the face of or in the time of Pilate or even in front of Pilate. So Not before Pilate showed up on the scene, but rather Jesus' confession was done in the presence of Pontius Pilate under the rule of Pontius Pilate. And so this not only includes his verbal response when he was being questioned, but also his death on the cross. And so when it comes to baptism, there are a few things that Scripture actually lays out for us on what baptism means. So not only is it a sealing of us in Christ in the Spirit, and not only is it a washing... But according to Paul in Romans 6, our baptisms unite us with Christ in his death on the cross and unite us with Christ in his resurrection from the grave. 
And so when we are baptized, not only are we confirming the faith that we have believed for ourselves, but we are publicly identifying with the Lord Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. But we're doing it, he tells us here, in the presence of those who are many witnesses, those who make up our local church covenant community. But that's not all. Like a late-night infomercial, there's more, right? He says this goes even deeper than our own public profession because it actually includes the entire church. In the early church, the one being baptized, the candidate, the baptismal candidate, they were making a public profession of faith in the presence of their whole church, of their local community. And this was not only done by the candidate, but it was actually also a public profession from the church towards them as well. In baptism, the candidate and the church, they make a covenant with one another. And the candidate makes a covenant to Christ, and he makes a covenant to the church. But then the church, in turn, covenants to keep the candidate in the faith and in the church by doing discipleship and community life and encouragement and even discipline if necessary. The historical church has always understood baptism to be a multi-purpose and multi-directional public good confession of faith. And so when Timothy then made his good confession at his baptism, he was confirming the new covenant eternal life promises to which he was called. He was seizing it. But the church was also confirming their covenant with him to keep him in the eternal life covenant promises that he had made. And so this aids us in our own satisfaction and godliness and in Christ because we are called to the same work of remembrance. Basil the Great simply proclaims here, he says, remember your baptismal vows. So Christian, remember your baptism and remember the confession of the orthodox faith in the Lord Jesus that you made at your baptism. But even more so, moving from the individual to the corporate church, Christ's community, help one another remember the good confession that we each made at our baptisms and keep the covenant. So contentment in this case, though, it's not an indifference or a lack of desire for the things that Christ has provided. But rather, it is simply just being satisfied in the Lord Jesus. This is the great gain of godliness. So we can seek contentment in Christ by remembering our baptisms and by remembering our good confession. We can seize it. We should possess it. We should fight for it. And we should proclaim it. And this is what I love about our worship at Christ Community Church. Because we get to take hold and seize our good confession every single week when we come to the table. We confess it in the creed and we confess it as we confess our sins. But then we get to seize it in the bread and in the wine. So come to the table and seize your good confession and make thanks for what Christ has done. And not only do it this week, but do it next week. And do it the next week. And do it from today and now on until, as Paul writes, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.